0: Well, hey, uh, if you have a copy of the Bible, uh, get it out. Open it to the book of Ephesians. I hope you have uh, something that you can write in uh, this morning because I'd like you to circle some things and underline some things. Uh, If you only have a digital copy of the Bible, that's great. Uh, Just make sure you turn the uh, volume down on it. If you don't know how to do that, uh, then sell it and get a flip phone and then buy a paper Bible with the extra money. It'll be great. So... uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians this week and next. And uh, just as an introduction, you know, I was, I was reading this week that from 1954 to 1962 uh, at Westminster Chapel in London, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great expositor, teacher of the word, uh, preached through the book of Ephesians and did 232 sermons on this letter. 232 sermons. Pastor Michael and I are going to be doing two. (laughs) So I think he went into a little bit more detail than we're going to. We're going to skip some of the details as we give you a brief overview uh, of this letter. What you're going to see this week and next as you read through the book of Ephesians is that it divides neatly into two halves of three chapters each. The first three chapters, chapters one through three, focus on tr- Christian truth, uh, what the Unfolding Grace book calls the gospel explained. And the last three chapters, chapters four through six, focus on Christian living, what the book calls the gospel applied. I'd like to put it another way, The first half is all about what God has done, and the second half is all about what we should do. And although this letter was written to a church uh, in the city of Ephesus, it was intended uh, from the earliest days to be read by all the churches in that region, Uh, but it does bear the name of uh, Ephesians because it was written to the church in the city of Ephesus. The word Ephesus means desirable, And the city of Ephesus was a very desirable place to live in the ancient world, kind of like the greater Austin of its day. It was a port city. It was a hub for travel and commerce. It was the fifth largest city in the ancient world. It was religiously pluralistic, a pagan city, and it was the site of the temple of Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a Greek city under Roman rule, and so you had Roman might and Greek elitism, and so it was a hub for secularism, materialism, pluralism, authoritarianism, and hedonism, And so if you look at the city of Ephesus, even though we're removed by 2,000 years, the people who first read this letter were very much like us. Like Paul founded the church of Ephesus on his second missionary journey, and then on his third missionary journey, he stayed there and pastored that church and taught for three years. When he left, Timothy became the teaching elder or pastor of that church. Paul writes him uh, two letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, when he is in that role. Uh, History records that Mary, the mother of Jesus, attended this church, that Priscilla and Aquila were leaders there, that Apollos that great teacher in the first century taught there, and that John, the disciple, most likely wrote the Gospel of John from the city of Ephesus as part of this church. And so they had a rich history. Could you imagine having a church filled with those kind of heavy hitters? Like you wanted to know something about Jesus. Just ask Mary. She's right there. Just ask John. Like he's sitting right there. Like it's pretty amazing. And so Paul writes this letter while he is in prison. The last time he had met with the leaders, the elders of this church, he had told them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. Paul loved this church like uh, he, it was near and dear to his heart. He wanted more than anything for them to remain faithful to the Lord, to walk in a manner that was worthy of the gospel. However, before he gets to any of that, before he starts talking about how they should live, how they should behave, how they should act as followers of Christ, he spends three full chapters talking about what God has done. What God the Father had planned in eternity, what He completed through His Son Jesus, and what was brought forth by the Holy Spirit. Like Paul spends three chapters developing a Christian worldview. Like he wants this church to understand themselves, who they are, like who the world is. He wants them to understand the world and their place in it. That's why it's so important. If you haven't already signed up, there's still some room for you to sign up for that worldview class during the 11 o'clock hour with uh, Scott Purcell. And so Paul, whose name literally means small, which is interesting because history tells us, 2nd century, we have a record of what Paul looked like, and it says that he was short. Now, he was short when the average size of a man was like five foot four. So we'd look at them and think all of these people are short, like even I would think they were short. And then there was Paul down there. And so Paul, whose name means small, right, writes to this small band of believers gathering in homes in this vast city probably thinking that they're kind of insignificant and even invisible. And he tells them, this little church, that they are actually the hope of the entire world. Like he wants them to know, listen, I know you're in a big bustling city, but let me tell you what God has planned and what God has done and what God has made in the church. Like he's telling this church, listen, God's eternal purpose was to bring you together, Jew and Gentile, to change the world. Like he tells them that God's cosmic plan was to unite everything in Christ. That's chapter 1. By reconciling us to God and to one another in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's chapter 2 through the proclamation of the mystery of Christ, who was crucified not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. That's chapter 3. And so now that you know where we're heading, uh, buckle up. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul from verses 3 through 14, like gets carried away. Like he just begins to gush and overflow with praise about the awesomeness of God. In fact, in the original Greek, there's over 200 words here that form one huge run-on sentence. There's no punctuation, no pauses. He just lets loose on how amazing God is. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us In Christ Jesus, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, God has already positionally given you everything He has to give, even as He chose us. Underline that, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, circle that, in love, that's God's motivation, He predestined, underline that word, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus. What did God love before the foundation of the world? Before there was anything, what did God love? You. Like God had his heart set on you. Like God loved you before the world was made. Like that should astonish you. Like Christian, you need to hold on to that. You need to believe that. You need to live like that to make it through this broken world in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose, circle the word purpose there, of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now as you read through chapters 1, 2, and 3, you're going to see the repetition of a bunch of words and a bunch of themes like purpose, and will, and plan, and prepared. Understand that God knows what He's doing. God has a plan set in eternity past, and He is working that plan. I I remember years ago when I was at Columbia my junior year, I took a class called Progress of Redemption. And it's an overview of the whole Bible, kind of like unfolding grace. It tells you that great meta-narrative that fills in all the gaps and all the stories and brings them all together in one. And in the first class, and this will like date me, in the first class the teacher gets up, and of course he's working with overheads, you know, those little clear plastic thing. And he says that, uh, you know, a new thing that companies are doing, is that companies have purpose statements. Like, this is a new thing back then, right? They have a purpose statement, and then what they do is they, they kind of work toward that purpose statement. That's their goal. That's their plan. That's their identity. And if you ever wonder, what's this company about? What are they doing? How does this fit? It's all meant to, like, achieve this goal. And he said, that's a new thing with companies, but it's not a new thing with God. Like, God has a plan, And God's plan, as spelled out in the book of Numbers and in the book of Habakkuk, is this. That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so as you read the Bible, if you wonder what in the world is God doing, that's what He's doing. Like He's filling the earth with the knowledge of His glory. In Him. Underline, in Him. You're going to see that repeated a lot. In the writings of Paul, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery. Another one of those words to be repeated a lot. The mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's His plan. Here's God's purpose. To unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things in earth. So what is the plan and purpose of God? To unite all things in Christ. He wants, like Paul wants us to behold what God has planned. Like if you ever wonder what in the world is God doing? Understand, God knows what He's doing. God has a plan. He's filling the earth with the knowledge of His glory. He's uniting all things in Christ. God is in complete control. In Him, once again, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. No cosmic mistakes, no accidents. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him once again, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory church. You heard the gospel, you believed. And you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is your guarantee that God will keep every promise He has made. He will lavish you. He's not holding back. He will lavish you with His kindness in Christ Jesus. Now remember, everything I've read is just one sentence in the original language. One long sentence. Paul wants us... And guys, he wants you, and he wants the church in Ephesus to be anchored in the plan and purposes of God. As the world around us shakes, and as it rocks, as it has no answers, and as it points fingers at everyone else, and as it divides, he wants us united in Christ, anchored in the plan and purposes of God. He wants like the church here, and he wants this church to know And hear this, that they are not merely a small piece of the puzzle. Like you are not merely a small piece of the puzzle. Hear this, you, church, are the picture on the box that makes sense to all the other little bitty pieces. Like you, church, are what God has been putting together like, since the beginning of time, you are the grace unfolded. You are what God has made. You are church, the assembly, the called out ones, the ecclesia from among all the nations. Behold what God has planned. And then he prays for them that the God of our Father of our uh, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation to the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, like He needs to enlighten our eyes so that we get this, so that we may know what is the hope to which He has called you. far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that has been named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He has put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Jesus over everything. Everything. Jesus saturating all of creation. Like Jesus is made head over all things and he takes all things and he wraps them up as a gift and he gives them to his church. Look what God has planned. And then, chapter 2, verse (laughs) 1, we have a very abrupt shift. He says these words, and you were dead. What does that mean? Well, dead means dead. Like you were dead. Like behold, you were dead. Like we know what God is doing, but what are you doing? Nothing. Dead people do nothing. Like you were dead. You were incapable of joining in what God was doing. Behold, you were dead in your trespasses. Like if you ever are hiking somewhere and you see a fence that says no trespassing, that means that's a place you're not supposed to go, right? But we are trespassers. We have walked onto God's land and taken His role and said that we will decide for ourselves what is wrong and what is right. Behold, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now the good news is we were part of something, right? We had community. The bad news is, is that it was a community of death, destined for wrath and the judgment of God. Verse 4. But God, circle that those two words 50 times. Like circle it in your own heart, but God. Even when we were dead, even when we were enemies, even when we were far from him, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. What did the Father love before creation? You heard it. He loved His bride. He loved His sons and His daughters. He loved His children. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and He raised us up with Him and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We already have the status of the Son of God right now if you are in Christ Jesus. He did this so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save you? So that for all eternity, He could lavish you with blessing because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Remember, God has a plan that we should walk in them. And then He gives the one command. Like in the first three chapters, there's only one command given, one imperative in three chapters, and here it is. Therefore, remember. Remember. There's only one command in these first three chapters. There are literally dozens in the last three. Like, there are 40 imperatives in the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians that account for about 60 different commands. But here, there's only one. Therefore, remember, remember where you were, where you, where you came from. Remember where you were when God found you and saved you. Remember how it used to be. Remember what it was like when you were lost. Remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's most of us, right? Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now let me explain what may be lost in 2000 years that separate us from the first readers. What Paul is saying here is that all of us were on the outside looking in. We could see the blessings that God had given to Israel, but we did not get to partake of them. Like we saw all of the amazing promises. We saw the blessing of God, but we didn't have a share. And that was not the plan of God. At that time, we were separated, alienated, strangers, with no hope and without God could it be any bleaker. But behold what God has done. Now, but now, once again, circle that. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, who were separated, alienated, strangers, without hope, without God, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, Jesus unites us to God, but he unites us to one another. We are one body, one church, one household. Like we are saved individually to stand together. And what he has done here is remarkable. You could be hard pressed to find two groups that were more at odds in the ancient world than Jews and Gentiles. But God is doing something here that the world has never seen. Like the world has never seen a hero dying for the villain. Like that's what happened here. That's how God reconciled us to himself. The hero of the story died not for the innocent, but for the one who was nailing him to the cross. The world has never seen the hero dying for the villain. The world has never seen a God condescend to, to clothe Himself in the very sin He detests and that He is destined for wrath. The world has never seen anything like the church. That's where Paul is building here. The world has never seen anything like the church. John Stott writes of this book, one of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us "...from all iniquity rather than to purify for himself a people of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians than as church men, and our message is more good news of a new life than a new society. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians without with a privatized gospel." For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Christ Jesus a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. The world had never seen anything like the church. One family, one household, one body, one new man, one church. Now, there's a lot of things right now in our culture that are trying to divide us. But the church, because of the gospel, is what unites us. And it bears repeating because the enemy is so divisive. Like the flavor of, of the day is critical theory. Guys, what critical theory could never do, God did by sending his son. Critical theory can never unite us. But the gospel does. What sociology could never do, soteriology did. The gospel, salvation, did. Like critical theory tells me that I owe you a debt. If you're a woman, if you're of a different race, Like, somehow I have wounded you, and as a result, I owe you. Can I just tell you, like, I owe the bank for my house. When I write that check once a month, I'm not thanking God for the bank. I'm like, you know, it's like, when is this going to be over? Right? The borrower becomes the lender's slave. Like, critical theory tells me that I owe you a debt, but the gospel tells me that you are my brother. And my sister. And there's nothing I wouldn't do for my brother or sister. So guys, why would we settle for the lesser when we have the greater? Like The gospel makes us one. Every tongue and tribe and people and nation, every ethnicity, every, every culture whether you're rich or poor, black or white, male or female, we are united under the gospel. And 1 John 3.16 says that no greater love is this, that you lay down your life like Jesus did and we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the gospel. We are united in Christ. Diversity is not the end goal. Unity in Christ is unified diversity that can only be purchased by Christ's true oneness. Crawford Luritz puts it this way, when Jesus returns, He will not inherit a harem. He will inherit a bride. Spotless and Beautiful. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Behold what God has made." Like Ephesians 3 tells us the why behind Ephesians 2. Like, why did God do this? Paul writes, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, like he's about to say, there's something that that as a Jew and as a former Pharisee, I'm uniquely positioned to explain to you guys. He writes this in verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, and here it is, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Scripture, a mystery is something that was shrouded for a time but is now revealed. And the Old Testament Jews didn't grasp this mystery, even though Abram, Abram wasn't a Jew. The first Hebrew was an Iraqi, even though Rahab and Ruth, both in the lineage of Jesus, were not Jews. Like the Old Testament Jews didn't grasp it, but we in this room are that mystery. Jews and Gentiles in one assembly. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You hear that? The manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. Like the world, like I said, has never seen anything like the church. But guess what? The heavens, the heavenly places, that spiritual realm has never seen anything like the church like the spiritual realm looks on both good and bad, angels and demons look on at the church and they, when they behold the church, have to conclude, what a God. Only God can do this. Only God could bring people from different languages, from different eras, young and old, black and white, like all around the world and make them into one body. Like it makes me think like when angels look at the church in astonishment and marvel, when demons look at the church and are confounded by what they see, what do they see that I don't see? What do they see that I'm missing? Well, I think this is what they see. We see a bunch of people And they see a bride adorned for her groom, dressed in white. That's the amazing, like the world has never seen anything like the church. And 2,000 years later, we're still standing. And so church, remember this. Remember what God has planned. Remember what God has done. And remember what God has made. The church is enormously important to God. It's not a piece of the puzzle. It's the picture on the box. Is the church enormously important to you? Like, are you living out the kind of unified diversity it talks about? Do you realize, in reality, there are only two families in the world? The children of God and the children of wrath those who are under the blood of Christ and those who are under the wrath of God. Are you a vital member of His church? Are you sacrificing through your talents and your, your gifts and your time and your energy and your financial resources? Are you sacrificing for what Jesus sacrificed His life for? Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. John Stott writes this about the church. If the church is central to God's purposes, as seen in both history and in the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed in the center? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your church, your bride, in every nation, among all people, throughout all time. God, that you had planned in eternity past to bring us into the household of God and to join us with Israel into one new man, one household, one family, one ecclesia, one gathering and assembly. Lord, you did that. And Lord, I pray that You would do something, a work in our hearts so that when we see the church, just like those in the heavenly realms, we would marvel at what You have done. That we wouldn't see just individual people, but we would see one person, one bride adorned for her beloved. It's in His name, the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand.